Hi, and welcome to Tapped into Psychedelics. I'm your host, Adam Tapp. With me is Handsome Jason, friend and producer. And uh, this episode is again sponsored by Avail Scientific, and I will make this disclaimer that the things discussed here today may or may not be reflected by Avail and ideology, practice, or opinion. So moving forward with us today is the great mycologist, Tyler Watson. Tyler, how are you doing? Hey, Adam. I'm good. How are you? <laughs> Fantastic, man. So, you know, we've had numerous conversations and, you know, your, your knowledge of mycelium and the overlap of knowledge you have is pretty impressive. So why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself? You well, know? yeah, thanks. I mean, more than glad to. Uh, I got first introduced to really the fungal kingdom during my time at Western University in uh, actually what would become the second bachelor's degree I did in biology. And I took this class, which was the biology of fungi at the time, or more or less on a lark. And I remember vividly the day I was sitting in that class after the class had ended, I kind of thought to myself, why are more people not focusing on this? So then I became more deeply fascinated with the fungal kingdom and um, spent some time doing research on fungi and other fun critters down in Ecuador uh, over the... 2008-2009 summer field seasons before making my way into a mycology lab to do my graduate studies. And now I work for Whitecrest Mushrooms out of Putnam, Ontario. Yeah, man, that's fantastic. And you you spent, you had some really interesting stories from the Amazon rainforest. Yeah, those two seasons were, I mean, very eye-opening compared to life in southwestern Ontario. Uh, I spent some, some time high up in the cloud forest of the Andes Mountains, as well as in the Amazon jungle in the basin down by the border of Brazil, um, which was actually wild. We we were in a, the closest coastal town, not coastal, the closest town to the border of Brazil is um, El Coca or Coca. Mm. And from there, we actually traveled by bus about 30 kilometers south and then by motorized canoe down the tributaries of the Amazon into uh, a national forest, the Yasuni National Park and indigenous land and we traveled by about four hours by motorized canoe and it is the most remote i have ever been in my life it was deep in the heart of the rainforest yeah that's uh that's pretty awesome man Mm -hmm. so So down i actually down there i believe the year after we were down there uh, a team out of yale i think found a really interesting fungal species called Pestilodiopsis microspora, which actually is notable in bioremediation applications because it can degrade polyurethane plastic. <laughs> really? And that was found not a kilometer from where I was doing my, my work that previous summer, which was really interesting. Well, in the biodiversity of the Amazon rainforest, it is amazing that you can have these incredible species all compacted in these areas. Mm-hmm. And it just all it takes is someone to go find them. Absolutely. Yeah. Many of which have never been properly documented before. Yeah. And, you know, and I remember... Actually, I've been in the Amazon rainforest as well. And I remember watching like Medicine Man with Sean Connery. I don't know if you guys remember this. He's like, I found the cure for cancer and I've lost it. And you're like, this is amazing. Yeah. And I've, I've always wanted to go. And then, yeah. And we were in the Peruvian on the other side of the Andes and went down the Rio Negro and stuff. And it was, I know what you mean about the notion of being remote. Well, you're like, I am so fundamentally far away from quote unquote civilization. And I thought it was absolutely wonderful. Yeah, very much so. And I, it was nice to come back, but at the same time. It was deeply moving. Yeah, it is, and it really—it's very interesting. It's—it's it's like a whole other world, and I just want to commend your Sean Connery there. Thank you. It was—it was subpar. I can do a better one, but you know, no. kind of caught myself off guard there. It's better than your walk-in. <laughs> I 
My Christopher Walken is terrible. It's mostly accidental. So, you know, obviously you have a special interest in psychedelic fungi. Absolutely. I, yeah. And sorry, I just want to, I want to have this correct. I say fungi, you say fungi. Is that like a potato potato thing or am I just sounding stupid? You like know, are they mycologists around the world scoffing at my pronunciation? You know, Adam, I believe this, I've been asked this question many times. I believe the correct, or correct pronunciation is actually fungi. But, but no one walks around and says fungi. <laughs> no, so no, I think it. even and even in the academic community, fungi or fungi are both acceptable. Acceptable. Okay, fair enough. And so let's uh, let's talk about psilocybin. Okay. So fundamentally, you know, everyone always thinks of magic mushrooms and basically mushrooms containing psilocybin. But there's quite a few mushrooms that contain psilocybin. Like h- how many are there, and where are they spread around? Like geographically, where do you find these? Wow. Um, so geographically, I believe they're spread pretty broadly all over the world. But what's interesting is that they're they're constrained within about 12 different genre of fungi, which are the classification level above a species. And some of these genera include, well, the big one that everyone knows about is obviously psilocybe. But some of the other ones, I mean, Gymnopolis is one of them. There's actually a really interesting story about the, the big laughing gym, it's called, <laughs> which is a gymnopolis mushroom. Um, Paniolis is also commonly yeah. used even in the um, sort of recreational psilocybin currently. Paniolis sees a little bit of a prevalence. Pansayans. I did those in Indonesia. I did mm-hmm. a huge amount and swam in a coral reef for like six hours. I don't even think I could get out. I, I thought I'd become like an aquatic mammal. It was, uh-huh. it was, it was actually pretty stunning. That sounds really interesting. Yeah. So, you know, in my understanding, and tell me if I'm wrong, is that, you know, the most of the psilocybin-containing mushrooms are generally sort of tropical and subtropical? I would say that as a generalization, that's that's correct. Yeah. Although, to bring me back to my Gymnopolis story, um, actually, it's it's really interesting. This this Gymnopolis species was all of a sudden found, this is this is a known to be a, a temperament, uh, a temperate European fungus and all of a sudden it was found in along the roadsides of ecuador and no one could figure out how it got there and it turns out to cut this story this longer story a little bit shorter it was actually brought over in the transplanted trees that had been sourced into ecuador to be planted along the roadside um so in this in these root bundles contained with the soil there was mycelium of this gymnopolis species and that's how it ended up on the other side of the world in the in the neotropics, yeah. Well, and we have psilocybin mushrooms here, like on both east and west coast. We have like Liberty Caps, Copelandia. Is that the species? I'm probably butchering that, but uh, that's. Well, I know we have them on both coasts. Uh, we don't really see them too much in southwestern Ontario, but definitely out in Newfoundland, you can find different um, psilocybin species. Would we actually see psilocybin containing plants in southwestern Ontario? Well, we wouldn't see psilocybin containing plants. Mushrooms. <laughs> um, Bazinga. Yeah, I know, right? I got called out on that one. Not that I've ever found, Adam. Hmm, fair enough. And so from psilocybin, I think everyone always thinks of psilocybin containing mushrooms. Sorry, so, I just kind of for a second. So why is that, though? Like, why wouldn't it be here? Why wouldn't it be here? I think the simplest way to answer that, Jason, is, is different fungal species have um, different environmental requirements at which they can survive, persist, and operate best at. And this generally comes down to uh, enzymatic activity, optimal temperatures, um, but certainly other things play in. Things like moisture, um, as a, actually a pretty broad statement, fungi need a moist environment to be able to proliferate, okay. um, which southwestern Ontario does have. But I, I guess I would, 
I would say it's likely if if they're not found here, it's because of uh, suboptimal enzymatic activity. Yeah, I've always thought it was temperature fundamentally, but then you have species growing, you know, in, in BC, which you know is a temperate rainforest. So yeah, and there's even fungal species up north in the Arctic. Um, there's interesting work going on right now at our at Chars, the Canadian High Arctic Research Center, um, to do with cataloging the Arctic fungi. And and that's not to say you're going to walk up to the Arctic and see lots of big mushrooms, but there are fungal yeah. species living up there. Now, would they be like sort of mycelium that are surrounding the natural rooting systems of plants, or would they be like an actual mushroom fruiting body coming out? Well, often the two can be intertwined. So those um, that that type of fungi you're, you're talking about there is they exist by it's called a mycorrhizal association and they exist very intimately with the roots of plants and basically help the plants but a lot of these when the fall comes and they get a shunting of energy and sugars down from their host plant will produce mushrooms because that's how they spread their spores that's interesting yeah and so you know and now we're kind of on this category you know i'm thinking about amanita muscara mushrooms Mm -hmm. and so you know we had a brief talk on this on the last episode about the idea of, you know, Santa Claus and Amanita muscara containing a psychedelic called muscamol and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So they have a tendency to grow in very cold climates, you know, like Northern Scandinavia, Northern Europe and stuff like that. But we, we find them here in Canada as well, no? Yeah. And I think my statement for that would be um, certain fungal species have far more specific requirements that they need mm-hmm. and other can be far more generalist. In fact, many of the psilocybes are very general species. Yeah. So, so what makes a mushroom uh, start to have psychoactive properties then? Like, I mean, all sorts of mushrooms grow in different areas, but only you said about what six to twelve genus. Yeah, about twelve genera have twelve genera. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Are known yeah, to contain psilocybin. <laughs> okay. So, so what is it that makes it so that they are containing these um, psychoactive chemicals? Well, that would be. Something that these specific species have in their genetic code um, that gets basically amplified and expressed. So they would go on to create these compounds that when we ingest them, we have neuro um, or uh, hallucinogenic or psychotropic effects. Now, the reason for this beyond humans ingesting them for their psychoactive properties is a little bit unknown. And it likely stems back to anti-herbivorism, hmm. uh, anti-herbivory mechanisms. Yeah, like a deterrent, so to speak. That's the leading theory at this point. Like capsium with hot peppers and stuff like that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh, okay, yeah. interesting. Which, which is a very pleasant coincidence for all of us. I know, right? And, and I wonder, like, you know, like, I know mammalian brains have tryptamine receptors, so therefore psilocybin would work, but would it fundamentally be similar in a reptile brain? No. Oh. That is a great question, right? Adam. I know. That's I know. I, I just thought about that for some reason, but yeah. So, muscamol is rather interesting, and we we had talked about this before. And I think that we should, you know, much like we're talking about imitation species. I think that we should have a brief topic on that for people who want to go out and pick mushrooms. That there is a plethora of imitating species that are highly, highly toxic. Oh yeah, we should say that disclaimer um, first. So for anyone, I mean, it's. I guess I'll be really broad. It's not a good idea to go out into the woods and consume mushrooms that you find without, yeah. <laughs> without explicit knowledge on, on the fungal species. Well, the, the most of them is said to be a hepatic toxin, no? Yes, that's the most, the most serious ones. Yeah. Um, 
I mean, we can get back to the Amanitas and, and Alpha Amanitan. Yeah, the destroying angel. The destroying angel, the death cap. Yeah, which is <laughs> obvious two name two alone species. should sort of insinuate. And, you know, and we were talking about this before and you were, what, what is, how does it work if I accidentally consumed a destroying angel mushroom? If you accidentally consumed a destroying angel, oh, that's kind of a fun timeline of the, <laughs> uh, of the, yeah, okay. I do, I do want to talk more about muscimol, but we'll, we'll let's talk about these first. So the destroying angel and the death cap, Amanita verosa and Amanita phylloides, contain a toxin um, called alpha amanitin. It's, uh, it's not degraded by heat, so cooking them won't do you any good. And it is a, um, it's toxic, toxic to the liver and the kidneys. It's hepatotoxic and uh, reno, it's a renal toxin. And the timeline, the progression of symptoms, um, for both of these mushrooms, generally eating as, as little as one full-size mushroom is enough to, to kill an adult. Yeah. And so if you eat one of these mushrooms um, approximately 12 to 24 hours after ingestion, you will experience mild gastrointestinal upset. Um, you'll experience probably diarrhea, sweating, cramps, perhaps vomiting, and you hopefully at this time will have the wherewithal to go to the hospital and check yourself out for amanita poisoning, but many do not. So you'll chalk it up to a bad case of food poisoning and carry on. And the next part is what's really nasty about it, because after that, there comes a latency period in which you feel better and you go about your day-to-day life. But meanwhile, um, unbeknownst, the alpha amanitin is actually destroying your kidney and your liver. So beyond 72 hours after ingestion, you will undoubtedly end up in the hospital. And I'm sure after a barrage of tests, the doctor will at some point ask you about three days ago, did you eat any suspicious mushrooms or any mushrooms (laughs) at all? And then when you say yes, um, they will know clinically what what's happened and that you need a liver and kidney transplant. And absolutely. And get you on the list for a a liver transplant. (laughs) I am happy basically. And yeah, I'm happy to report though. Um, mortality rates from this in history, historical were upwards of 70%. Um, the, I think the ones that survived probably just didn't eat enough. Yeah. But nowadays we do have um, more complex techniques of, of treatment and the mortality rates down to about 10 to 20%. So a lot more people survive ingesting these mushrooms. Yeah. But there's still no trivial no trivial matter. Yeah. And so let's talk about muscimol then. Okay. So, yeah. You know, I, I find that it's, it's funny that psilocybin is always the thing that people talk about. And it's, you know, it's very... Most people, when they think of a psychedelic mushroom, it's... It's psilocybin. Whereas muscimol, I feel like, has played a very integral role in Europe and tribal ritualism and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So what what do you what are your thoughts on muscimol and Well, I think it it's funny to me looking at the two of them. I, I mean to compare it to psilocin in the human body is is that they act in a very fundamentally similar way, in that they both are agonists against the reuptake of certain neurotransmitters. Different neurotransmitters, granted, psilocybin is for serotonin and muscimol acts on GABA, um, but they both fundamentally act in that in that same way. And by stopping that reuptake, they allow this um, basically synaptic transmission to occur for longer. But what's really interesting is that in Amanita muscaria, um, there's also something called ibotenic acid, and ibotenic acid is very structurally similar to muscimol and is in fact a precursor of muscimol 
So it's the, the leading theory is that this ibotenic acid actually gets dephosphorylated, uh, decarboxylated, my mistake, into muscimol upon ingestion in humans, which is a good thing because um, the ibotenic acid is a glutamate agonist. So glutamate is, I've got those backwards, Adam. When there's too much GABA in the synapse, it actually, um, it's a damper. It reduces neuronal transmission. Hmm. Whereas um, glutamate, the one that I was just going to talk about, is another one just like serotonin. It, it continues the propagation. So it functions very similar to psilocybin. Then. They, they all seem to. Um. Which, which seems, because it's funny, like with, with you know, psychedelics, you mm-hmm. see them as being a tryptamine or a phenethylamine, which would be like MDMA and you know, uh, peyote, which would be masculine or something like that. Mm-hmm. And then all the other ones, tryptamine-based ones, where you have this fundamental sort of similar pathway, and then that can bring us back into ergot too. It which, definitely, it definitely can, but we could also shed light on that the method of action for these substances is almost identical as the most common over, um, form of antidepressant treatment available right now in the like SSRIs. SSRIs, yeah, yeah, like because Paxil and they're selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, which is exactly what. That's you know what I've actually never made that connection before, and I find that fascinating. Is that I, I didn't realize that mm-hmm. you know tryptamine-based psychedelics work in a fundamentally similar method as SSRI antidepressants. Did you forget that there's a antidepressant medication called amitriptyline? Yes, okay. yes, I'm aware of amitriptyline. Just Thank you, Jason. That's, <laughs> that's all I'm here for. <laughs> yes, seriously. No, that that's really cool, man. And you know the one thing too is like you know we we've talked about this before, ergot. Yeah. So ergot or claviceps purpurea, um, interesting fungus. It, I guess it's, it's prevalent and notable. The reason that we're talking about it is because throughout history, it's gotten into grain supplies, which then get processed into, uh, for human consumption. And upon ingestion, it's got a whole suite of alkaloids that, that caused nasty symptoms. Um, neurological symptoms as well as um, vasoconstriction tingling of extremities a whole bunch of of nasty um, expressions well i think it's notable to mention too is that albert hoffman synthesized lsd from ergot yeah from ergoline either ergotamine or ergotine yeah which is which is pretty interesting in that ergot as well as the sort of the illicit mysteries and stuff like that has been being used as a psychedelic for centuries, as well as a pharmacological substance as well. And that it can cause vasoconstriction. It's been used to induce abortions as well as postpartum hemorrhaging and stuff like that. Yeah, so some of the specific constituents within ergot um, definitely have medicinal application, and we've seen that. Um, just unfortunately, on the whole, ingestion of the sclerotia yeah, uh, it's, it's, it's fairly toxic. It doesn't has end a, up well. A high mortality rate. Absolutely, it does. I mean, and Adam, it's been it's been suggested that it's been responsible for the deaths of a Roman emperor, Holy yeah. Roman emperor, um, the popes. I believe the the pope's son was very ill with it back in the late ten, well, the late eleventh century. Well, and this is still a reoccurring problem too, right? Like you know, you, you talk about um, brewers and stuff like that in Europe and having issues because I think it's predominantly infects rye grain. Yeah, you're correct there. Although it can affect other cereals too. Yeah, um, wheats, triticale. Um, it's not really common on oats. And so it's been sort of this war being fought even to modern times against ergot. And, you know, it, it's funny that most people are really unaware of what ergot is. And at the end of the day, it is the derivative for LSD as well as 
a very potent toxin that infects grain stores throughout Europe and all over the place. Yeah, very much. Urging, urging. Urging. That's the uh, that's the the precursor or the hmm. closely related compound, anyway. So, are there any other psychoactive fungi? You know, like I, I've. I, I search for this, I try and read about it, and I find that, like, you know, other than psilocybin, muscimol, and then ergot, you know, is there anything I'm missing? Well, that brings me back. So I'm not sure the active compound within it, but that Gymnopolis species that I mentioned that was transplanted into yeah. Ecuador, they call that one the big laughing gym. And that's because upon ingestion, it creates, along with mild stomach upset, I, I guess elation, a sense of yeah. elation and humor and euphoria or something. Euphoria. That's what I'm yeah. looking for. Oh, that's awesome. So, you know, we, we've kind of gotten to the notion of psychedelic fungi and through psilocybin, muscimol, and ergot and stuff. But, you know, I find that, like that the whole idea of fungus to be so deeply fascinating. And one thing that we've talked about before, which I think is worth a conversation, is the largest organism in the world. And which is this massive fungal con- colony of, I believe, honey mushroom in the Blue Mountains in Oregon. Yeah, which is a, I know it's a species of armillaria out there. The genus is armillaria. And it, yeah, indeed, it it uh, encapsulates a bunch of space. Yeah, it's like 3.8 kilometers or something. Okay. And, you know, I was reading about, I remember reading about this years ago. And it's, it's funny that, like, they're estimating that it could be up to 10,000 years old. Yeah, um, I could definitely see that because this this organism would persist, or if if conditions were right, and it had plenty of armillaria, is um, it's definitely a decomposer. But I think it also acts a little bit as a parasite on certain trees, yeah. especially if they're uh, immunocompromised. No, yeah. but uh, <laughs> um, if they're wounded or or susceptible to fungal infection. And so it's interesting to note that it's the largest organism on the planet, quite possibly the heaviest. And if it gives context, if it's 10,000 years old, you know, the Neolithic period ended 5,000 years ago. I know. It's pretty crazy to think, isn't it? Yeah, that, that you've had this organism functioning, existing, living, breathing for 10,000 years, which, you know, that I find that absolutely amazing because historically I've always thought is the largest animal or organism in the world would be a blue whale, hands down. The largest by mass? Yeah. What's the average lifespan of a mushroom? Because if these are 10,000 years old... Like do most up to ten thousand years old. Yeah. Well, either way, like do do most mushrooms end up um, lasting that long? Or so that's a that's a bit of a tricky question. It's a good question. It depends on so when when you say mushroom, I think fruiting body, but people sometimes don't know or or don't understand that what's below the fruiting body is actually it's the fungus, and that's the mycelium that's existing below the surface of the soil. So this mycelium is, is propagating and extracellularly digesting and growing. And when conditions are right and when it has, when it's achieved two, two genetic sets of information, it can create a fruiting body, which is that what we see on the surface, that's the mushroom. So this is used primarily to disperse spores, which back at this point are like our sperm and our egg cell. They're half an organism. These mushrooms can be extremely short-lived. Um, in the in some cases, like in the inky cap mushrooms, they can last a matter of hours to days before they decompose. Actually, the inky caps eat themselves through a process of um, auto-lysing. <laughs> Autophagin. Auto-lysing. <laughs> is it's really yeah. interesting. They use it, and it's it's thought to enhance spore disbursement because as they auto-lyse, the bottoms of the caps actually peel backwards and, and fold up, 
um, sort of intuitively allowing more airflow and better spore disbursement under there. Um, but other ones, uh, like some brackets on different trees, now brackets are a little bit, they're still a fruiting body, but they're not what you think of a mushroom. If you see any, if you see a growth that looks kind of like a, probably some sort of a, a clamshell or, or a shell existing off the side of a tree, that's probably a bracket fungus. And a lot of these can exist for years and years. And just as the years go by, new active sections will, will um, grow on these brackets, making them larger. These are generally very tough. And this is all to complete the fungal replication cycle, which is to allow spores to disperse and start a new generation of fungus. But that original mycelium colony that created the bracket or the mushroom um, often case persists for years until conditions no longer support its, its uh, persistence. So in terms of fungal lifespan, we can talk, and I'm, I'm speaking broadly about basidiomycetes, generally mushroom-forming fungi, um, because we can get into a whole bunch of different weird oddballs in zygo and chytridiomycota and ascomycota. But they can, they can last on a period of, of months to, to many years, decades. Oh, really? Wow. So another thing that I'm extremely fascinated with and that I've read quite a bit about is, is slime molds. You know, while, while we're talking about the notion, uh, I think it's very fitting while, while we're talking about mushrooms and psychedelics combined is just the idea of slime molds being able to have no brain, but yet interact with their environment, work in unison with one another to function as a, a complete organism. Slime molds are a deeply fascinating organism, Adam, how they, how they collect and aggregate and essentially work as one to... Um, in some cases, achieve mobility. They actually move the whole the whole collection of cells um, physically from one location to another. Yeah, don't they actually? They move back and forth, and their sort of cytoplasm actually acts like a wave, and is sort of like literally just moving oh. themselves progressively through this weird. Well, they have some of them have very very prominent cytoplasmic transmission, mm -hmm. um, but that's generally to shunt nutrients from one area of the slime mold to another. Uh, I don't want to say hyphae here because I also have to say that these actually aren't fungus. These are not fungi. Slime molds. Oh, really? Are, nope. They're a different. They're not. Um, they're, I think, a fungus-like organism, but they're not a true fungi. So, what category do they technically fall in? Mm, that is a great question, and something I should know based on my prior teachings. But at this time, I cannot tell you. Yeah, and so you know, one of the things that I I remember reading about was that they were doing a study where they basically had the Tokyo subway system mm -hmm. a, as like a, a comparative. And they had basically this thing of agar, roughly the, the same coastal shape as Tokyo. And they put these oats flakes in reference to large demographic areas. Mm -hmm. And they let the slime mold sort of move through this and establish feeding pathways. And what it created was alarmingly identical to what years, you know, of engineers and planners to develop the Tokyo subway system. I, yeah, I've heard of that study as well. And I think that... So basically, once the slime mold found all of those um, food sources, it it very quickly um, pulled back in its cytoplasm from the redundant portions of the slime mold, creating a very efficient network in between all these different food sites, which I think were were modeled on stops on the Tokyo uh, metro system. Hmm. But I believe the results from that study, and I could be wrong here, but I think they actually were found to be more efficient than what computer algorithms yeah. and en engineers had found. And, and from, from that, I find it really fascinating is that, you know, we look at, and we've had this conversation before, the notion of emergence, where you have a series, like, you know, you can use it as ants, 
very, very easily is that an individual ant, I'm not saying it's fundamentally useless, but by itself serves a very specific purpose, but you put a whole bunch of them together and they can accomplish like forms of agriculture. And then you start seeing this within slime molds, something that fundamentally doesn't have a neural system, it doesn't have a brain, but yet it's interacting with its environment. It's making decisions. It's looking around, it's evaluating its surroundings, it's evaluating food sources, and then making decisions that is best for its survival. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I kind of wonder, you know, if we can go back to the largest organism in the world, where you have something that is, you know, like 3.8 kilometers wide, and if you take the notion of emergence and you apply it to that, I'd be very, it'd be wildly insane on how it's experiencing its environment. You know, because if you, the more complex something becomes, like, you know, as an example, like we're sitting here and I have, you know, billions of neurons all clicking away, yes or no, and we're having this conversation. And I'm not saying that, you know, this fungal body is the same thing, but the more complexity you have to something and it has the capacity to start making these decisions, you know, it's, it's, I would be very curious to see what this organism buried in the forests of Oregon actually is capable of doing or how it experienced the world around it. Well, there's a lot of, uh, I think I saw an article a few weeks ago published in Canada that were, was talking about, uh, the headline was something like, Fun, Fungi do speak and they have a language of 30 words or a dictionary of 30 words, which I didn't especially like. But it did bring up an important topic, which is this notion of, of communication between different fungal organisms and between organisms that they are intimately or indirectly associated with. The entire, so most people know fungi as a decomposer. Hmm. Um, it, they the fungi have many different lifestyles. Um, they can act as parasites. They can act as predators. Um, the the oyster mushroom is a really interesting example of that. But the one perhaps most prevalent one on the face of the earth, and and also undiscountably important, is mycorrhizal fungi. And these are the fungi that exist with. They exist with a massive proportion of plants on on the face of the earth something like upwards of 70 percent of all plants have mycorrhizal fungal associations and what they're doing is as the plant grows these fungi intimately associate themselves with the roots down to either touching on a cellular level or actually integrating themselves within the cells of the plant like a plant root cell creating this this awesome exchange interface structure called an arbuscule and there's two different types of mycorrhizae, but what they're doing is they're helping the plant access um, nutrients, water, things that it might need at the time. Because in terms of this partnership, to create one hypha is much less of an investment than for it is than it is for the plant to create a root cell. There's a lot there's a lot more that goes into creating a root than there is creating a single fungal hyphae. So the plant recruits the the fungus to help it allocate um help it access these resources that it otherwise wouldn't be able to access and over the course of the growing season the plant grows and generally as it becomes dormant in the case of deciduous trees they drop their leaves conifers go more dormant at that point it shunts fluids and sugars back down to the fungus below out through these connections um basically kicking a little bit of sugar back to the fungus going like hey thanks so it creates this symbiotic relationship. It is absolutely and, a symbiosis. Well, you know, it's another interesting thing is that I was reading about this a while back. I think it was research done, it was done on BC in the forestry industry, is that these mycelial sort of networks actually cause communication between trees and yes. different species of trees and within the entire forest itself and can actually 
move and provide carbon around to different plants, different trees, and that actually they show to some degree preference to their own genetics. So like a, a parent tree would literally show preference to the distribution of nutrients via these mycelial sort of pathways. Yeah, they're, they're absolutely mycelial pathways. And yeah, that's, that's the more meaningful um, communication, I think, because we're only just touching the surface of that. Oh, out in, out yeah. in the forest below the surface of the soil. I mean, you can put it on an article and say not to bash, but you can say fungi have a language of, of 30 words, but there's a unknown complexity of communication that exists. Well, and that's the anthropomorphic perspective that we always exist in where we look out and we say that they only, they speak in 30 words. I know. And you know what I mean? And like, and that's the only way you can communicate is with this vernacular, this verbalization and, and so forth. But, you know, I think we we're talking about this before is that a lot of the times the fungus can communicate by just using enzymes mm -hmm. and it would be similar to like an on off button sort of yes or no, or even variances and stuff like that. And, and again, on and off in a computer system, you have enough of those on and offs and you have a very complicated computer program. So from that basic idea, you can have these highly, highly, highly complex mycelial structures that would be very capable of advanced computing to some degree. And much like in a slime mold, where they're evaluating the environment around them, seeing opportunities and capitalizing on said opportunities to me is, is to show like bordering on advanced consciousness. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I certainly think we're talking about biological computing and yeah, organic and, computers. Yeah. And it, it almost seems to me like, you know, like for the, and again, this is getting a little bit theoretical, but the idea of, you know, we almost tap in nice. to this, sort of advanced computing went on high dose psilocybin and stuff like that. And then, you know, there's been numerous times where I've done a large amount of psilocybin and you're just almost integrating with this sort of advanced organic computer. And it's absolutely amazing. And the very fact that we have this, you know, when you talk about the idea as a deterrent and that's totally reasonable, I'm sure at some point it is a deterrent, but the fact that it is almost tailor made for our neurological system to create these experiences you know, whether it's a deterrent or otherwise, I feel like, you know, whether it's one came before the next, it seems like myceliums and have sort of followed around humanity or humans followed around mycelium, you know, and whether that's, you know, basically tribesmen following around cattle and different things and, and having these mushrooms growing out of them. And then fundamentally the, the integration that we have with humanity and fungus, I, I don't think was really fully understood. And I think it's going to take a long time to fully understand it. And even these stories are talking about how this communication networks through forests and, you know, these pathways of mycelium that loosely reflect human neurological systems is. I, I couldn't agree more. And I think, uh, I mean, there is a certain complexity, even with how they directly affect us as humans as pathogens. But but I also totally agree whether whether the antiherbivory um, sort of is well I mean it's not effective on us because we use it for other purposes. Uh, but this is not a this is not a new notion. I mean many of the things that we use as as spices and we find flavorful in our diet were originally yeah. and are intended as. As I mean, a deterrent, like capsicum. Absolutely, capsicum. Um, I think of cinnamon. I mean, these are all things that are to help protect the plant, and and we've decided that we quite like them. 
Yeah. And, it, and it's interesting, like, you know, capsicum, I believe it originated like pepper plants and stuff in the Amazon rainforest and birds don't have the receptors to feel the heat. So the birds would consume them and they would fly around and their droppings would cause the spread. But other animals wouldn't consume them because it's unpleasant for most things. And then humans decided to, you know, take this affinity for them. And now they're one of the most successful plants, you know, aside from like wheat, obviously, and rice and stuff. But well, isn't that curious? I wonder who's doing what? I'm thinking about the birds and and the peppers. Is that is that intended because of the greater range of birds? I because the so. birds can bring their seeds a greater distance. Yeah, and that's say, why yeah. there was such a rapid wow. spread throughout South and Central America. Yeah. And then you got to wonder who's doing what. You know what I mean? <laughs> and, and at the same time, you're looking around at these psilocybin species, and now here we are, arguably on the cusp of a psychedelic revolution, and people are getting licenses to grow psilocybin, and you're like, well. You know, <laughs> this is theoretical, obviously. It was like, well, who's doing what? You know, the ideas of domestication. Oh, but, I see what you mean. But yes. You know what I mean? But I mean, that really speaks to the human experience as well, because we kind of go out of our way to seek out ways to augment the human experience in whatever way and shape and form it is that we can do that in, right? Um, it's the reason why some people have affinity for BDSM and, and those pain <laughs> receptors. Reference. Well, yeah. it's just I, masochism. Well, masochism. Thank yeah. you. That is the word I was looking for. And, uh, that's, <laughs> I stand <laughs> by what I said <laughs> anyways. Um, yeah. So, I mean, even with the, uh, the mycelium and, and these uh, psychedelic mushrooms that we're discussing, it's almost like we stumbled across them and somebody had some sort of an altering experience, not necessarily like a spice response, but uh, consciousness expanding response in a way. And uh, we continue to cultivate and seek these things out because of the different um, changes and alterations in the human experience that we have. Well, I don't and then, know if we yeah. would agree on that, but that's kind of what I'm hearing. Well, and then you have the ideas like, you know, stoned ape theory and stuff like that. And I'm not saying that I'm adherent to this, but it's an interesting idea that the development of human consciousness has, has been symbolically associated with tryptamine psychedelics and that perhaps that was the difference of our early ancestors you know roaming around becoming bipedal on the african plains and then consuming a mushroom and then having this consciousness awakening it's yeah it's a very interesting theory yeah and again too it's it's very subjective and i'm sure a lot of people would discount it but it's sort of a fascinating idea it's absolutely it's deeply fascinating and i mean i think I don't think you do any good to discount it. Well, and you know, and that's a funny thing. I've had this conversation with a lot of people. Like, you know, if you're using the metric that there's no evidence for something, so therefore it's not true, I find that alarming. You know, because to, to me, it's like we don't understand consciousness. We, you know, up until quite recently, we thought that the Earth was flat and it was a geocentric universe, and here we all are trying to bridge the gap between quantum physics and general relativity. There are and some to people me, out there that think the world is flat. Yeah, FYI. I know. <laughs> you know, it's actually amazing. A, a guy I know who's an engineer and he came over one night with another friend and we're, you know, drinking some tea and hanging out and he started going on about flat earth. I thought he was joking. Oh, really? And he actually got right into it. And it, it, I found it alarming that this guy was just willing to just go head first into this. But, you know, that's still a bit subtle digression here. But was it convincing? No, God, no. It was actually, I almost kicked him out of the house. And I'm like, I'm trying to, 
we can just talk through this. And it just, it did not work out. I know this is a bit of a segue, but honestly, like my favorite is that Netflix documentary where the, where they're talking to the flat earthers and they're documenting this whole experience and they end it off with the guy doing the experiment with the laser. They're like, Oh, we'll do able to do this again. Yeah. 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 And then it like <laughs> basically proves him wrong. That there's curvature to the earth. Well, he got proved like, wrong time and time again throughout that entire documentary. And then at one point, this is going to be like the smoking yeah. gun and then a boom, another failure. And it's like, ah, next time we'll get them. And I'm like, but I would almost yeah, argue that I would almost argue that we're on the cusp of that in this realm, in this space, right? Like we're learning more and more about mushrooms, mycelium, kind of their effects on humans, as well as the environment in its entirety and in its wholeness. Um, we're on the cusp of something very similar. There's a lot of people that are very firm and implanted in that mindset of, well, no, this yeah, is not the way that we're doing things. And exactly what Tyler was talking about, about the discovery of a mycelium that can break down polyurethane. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's incredible. Or oyster mushrooms, and we were talking this before, that can break down hydrocarbons. Yeah. Which, probably your thing, fundamentally similar, but you can, you know, take an oil spill and put a bunch of oyster mushrooms on it, and in a surprisingly short period of time, there will be almost no traceable hydrocarbons left in that soil sample. Yes, and it's, yeah, it's not the only species with that, that ability, but a lot of them, I mean, in the bioremediation applicability, like, I mean, a tailing pond full of Bunker Sea out, out west here in Canada there could be soon a fungal application to help to help with that. Well, and, and it's, it is amazing that we're not pursuing this more vehemently right now. And, and to me, it's like, it's, why not just throw some in? Like, you know, you're not dealing with humans and having to do substantial medical testing and so forth. And, you know, I, I just, you know, I, I was reading about that years ago. Mm-hmm. You know, like probably a decade ago, I think I was reading about oyster mushrooms consuming oil um, spills and so forth in soil. And yet I've nothing seems to be coming from it. And, and I'm wondering too, like, you know, and the more that I'm listening, like CBC constantly has mycological programs on mm-hmm. and dealing with this, that I'm sort of hoping that, you know, as we progress, mycology becomes, you know, significantly more opportunistic for people to be getting into and providing careers for this. Well, you know what, Adam, I absolutely agree. And I, I think it is, uh, it's been a bit of a slow process. Um, but I think in the last year to, to three years, we've had a huge paradigm shift and a big shining of light on the field of mycology where the public is now more aware of it than ever. Um, not to mention fantastic advances. Yeah. I mean, we have, I've, you look at states, companies coming out of the states that are making textiles out of, out of mycelium, that are making uh, composites, that are making bacon. acoustic panels, yeah. that are making mycelial <laughs> bacon. Absolutely. Yeah. I still really want one of Paul Stamets's hats. Yeah, no, so it's mushroom actually. cap hats. Yeah, I think that's, a, ga- I think that's a Ganoderma. Okay. We'll, we'll see what we can do for you, Jason. So the, hold, hold on, hold on <laughs> a second. I do want to ask this because we kind of like segued a distance away from um, more so your expertise. We were talking about the different types of mushrooms. Are all mushrooms in the psychedelic realm created equally or are they different? Like, we think of these things as psychedelics and psychoactive substances, but like not every experience is the same because otherwise, you know, consuming peyote would be the same as consuming cannabis would be the same as right. LSD. See, I've never done muscamol, but in my understanding that it's the, the, the plant material itself can make you, you know, like nauseated abdominal pain. There can be diarrhea associated with it in the psychedelic experience. There's dizziness, tremors, elevated heart rate. You know, the, the feeling of flying and different things. Like a friend of mine had a bunch of it and I just wasn't really quite interested because, you know, speaking of masochism, you know, mm-hmm. there's better ways to have experiences. But Yeah, and I think 
So there's there's two things at play there is that the different species of fungi that we know for their psychoactive properties um, will all likely have different suites of accessory compounds present within that fruiting body. So yeah. that's what what Adam's talking about there is it's it's likely that suite of compounds other than the muscimol, perhaps in conjunction with the muscimol itself, that's that's giving that barrage of of side effects, I would say. And that's that's true for extending into all the other genre of, of psychotropic mushrooms. Tinted gymnopolis, inasibi, conasibi, gallerina. Don't go eating those. <laughs> no, no. Check. So to kind of dumb this down a little bit for me, because again, this is not my space or, or my knowledge uh, area. Um, if we were to equate this to say cannabis, kind of what you're talking about, mm. uh, would you say that like the the suite of chemicals that are in there would be similar to comparing uh, sativas and indicas with in between the different mushrooms or or terpenes as these subtle sort of accessory yeah terpenes as well yeah sure well that's more like the flavor profiles is it not yeah very psychoactive yeah, yeah that's fair you know what yeah that's a fair analogy we can leave it there but I mean the other part of it also is that even within the genus different species can have different levels of these psychoactive compounds within their fruiting body within their flesh so even in psilocybe i know there's a big difference in um, measured psilocybin or psilocin and i think at this point when it was measured it was psilocybin the content of the psilocybin in a standardized weight of of mushroom between psilocybin cubensis and psilocybe azuris um azuricins or something um so they can have i mean azuricins had almost double the the weight of psilocybin yeah. per dried weight. And I was thinking the same so thing, like uh, pancyans are fairly potent when it comes down to psilocybin concentrations comparative to, I think most people, if you're consuming psilocybin mushrooms, that it's psilocybin cubensis because they're sort of the easiest to cultivate. You know, you can do it in your house if one felt so inclined. So, so time for an academic debate between the two of you. What would be the gold standard of psychedelic mushroom? Because I've heard blue angels... Are quite blue good, angels, but I don't know if that's right. I think I think Is, isn't a blue angel something else entirely? See, like so. lighting and fire you. flatulence. Yeah, I don't. That's what that is. I think <laughs> yeah. I think you're going for <laughs> blue meanie. Yeah. Oh, maybe there you blue go. meanie. There we go. There we See, go. that's what I meant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was the thing I sent. <laughs> yeah. So we get into, um, so so blue meanie is a is a strain of cubensis, and mm. and in this part, an analogy to the cannabis model would be fair. Um, that's that's very much what these strains are they're they're interbreeding sometimes between species um sometimes you can cross psilocybe tamponensis with cubensis and result in a in a second generation cross um that will be something different completely but a lot of these things like golden teacher and amazonian and different stuff they're all psilocybin cubensine now and they're just sort of sort of hybrids within that i i believe golden teacher is i don't know whether amazonian is a distinct species or not and so one thing about that is like, you know, I, I find, I wonder if this is just a marketing thing where all these psilocybin companies are saying that, you know, <laughs> golden teacher does this and it makes you more introspective and it's, it's less intense and then Cambodian or more intense, but yeah, less introspective. And I'm, I'm wondering like, you know, to me, I find that every psychedelic experience is different anyways, regardless if I'm doing the same type of mushroom and you know, I, I wonder if that's all just straight marketing, but within psilocybin cubensi, is there much room for differentiation in the sense that would the psilocybin content be relatively between 10 and 13 milligrams of psilocybin per gram of dry mushroom body? So I think there can be fluctuation on that scale, but I think that the marketing aspect is is definitely a little bit to the perceived effects, but right. also yeah. 
No, I think I suspect it's also now I'm a bit biased here as a mycologist, but I'm I suspect it's also to um, the different effectiveness and ease of propagation and growth. Yeah, fair enough. Because I, f- I find like psilocybin gibbensi is relatively easy to grow. And then you start looking at pan sands like wood lovers and stuff like that, where you have to actually, you know, soak, you know, wood chips and then inoculate them. And it's this whole very significant process. They're very temperamental. They like specific environments. Mm-hmm. Whereas psilocybin gibbensi, you can kind of do in your home. I don't want to start promoting anything here, but. No, but you're, you're correct. It's very general. It's a very, it's a generalist. Um, Cubensis is. And so when you see, you know, our North America, let's just use as an example here, sort of moving towards this psychedelic revolution, do you see it being predominantly psilocybin cubensis mushrooms that is going to be available in the market, whether it's recreational or pharmaceutical? You know what I do, Adam? And that's, I think that's just because right now that's the standard. So we have really no inertia to deviate from that at this moment. So I predict that's what we'll move forward with and expand upon. And then progressively over time, people might start moving towards, I'm not going to say more exotic species, but just species that are outside of what we're currently using. I, I think Absolutely. I think a good analogy would be the whole craft beer thing, right? Yeah. yeah. You know what I mean? Your, yeah. your psilocybin cubensis will be essentially your Coors Light, not to make it sound awful. but It, it does. That's like the worst <laughs> thing you could have said. Coors Light, are you kidding? Okay, so pick a better beer that's like call easy it to make, right? Know. Okay, Whatever. Heineken, yeah. sure. But anyways, and then you get into the craft beers, right? Like it'll eventually um, deviate and see differentiation based on uh, market demand and what people are looking for. I'm I'm assuming kind of like what you were saying about um, the the active chemicals that are in the mushrooms kind of varying in concentration that can be promoted in certain ways during the growth process, or is it static? That is a that's a great question, Jason, and I think that's something that. Um, probably a few people and even academic institutions are currently working on because the pathways yeah. to, to psilocybin um, content. And are, I wonder that if if psilocybin is present in the mushroom as a deterrent for herbivorous creatures consuming it, mm-hmm. i.e. us potentially in that, that if putting stress on it in a specific mannerism that's, you know, positive stress where you're not actually destroying it mm-hmm. could potentially increase psilocybin methods, you know, it's, I, I've heard of some people making claims that there's certain things that you can do to mycelial colonies to actually increase the levels of psilocybin or the volume of the mushrooms. But I, I've always thought that it's, it's fixed in a sense mm-hmm. to the genetics of the individual mycelial colony. And I could be entirely wrong in that because let's be realistic. I don't know what I'm talking about, but well, you know, Adam, I've had that same kind of, um, conception also. I, I sort of, go about thinking day to day that it's fixed, but it really is interesting. And I don't think it's something that we can rule out as, as being modulatable. I I think, I mean, it's really interesting. You can implement a passive herbivory program on these fruiting bodies as they, as they start to pin. And would that drive up psilocybin content? I don't know. Well, another interesting thing too, is like, you know, you look at diversity within it. And so let's just say, hypothetically, you were growing mushrooms, hypothetically. Okay. Now, the idea of having multi-spore where you would have a bunch of different genetic material all growing within there and potentially breeding as opposed to the alternative of actually cloning and using identical genetic material. Mm-hmm. So within that, you know, does isolating genetic material and proliferating it, does that weaken it over time? No, I, I generally think the opposite. Um, generally, that isolated um, material has been selected upon for desirable traits. 
So it either produces very attractive fruiting bodies or very large in volume fruiting bodies or perhaps very high psilocybin content fruiting bodies. And that's why that's that genetic has been um, basically saved and propagated forward. Oh, so it, in it, a sense, it, you're trying like, to pick the best of the best. Yeah, some sort of like selective evolution or survival of the fittest kind of thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Mendelian genetics. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Eugenics program with mushrooms. It's absolutely fantastic. It's definitely, um, it's definitely a little bit of a selection. You know, one thing that we didn't talk about and that we've had this converse- conversation before is zombie fungus. Oh, yes. Cordyceps. Yeah. And... I I remember reading about this in a National Geographic years ago, and this actually blew my mind. And then again, it comes down to that same thing that you have this organism acting highly intuitively and intelligently, where you'll have like an ant, and you had mentioned caterpillar too, which I was unaware of, or even spiders that can get infected with this. And then the ant will actually, once the infection starts or the mycelium starts reproducing, it will actually leave the colony because ants keep their colonies very temperate controlled mm-hmm. and actually seek out more humid environments and crawl to a high part of a tree where this, you know, fruiting body bursts from this ant and then perpetuates the cycle again by dropping spores. Mm-hmm. So that level of like that, you know, obviously mycelium can be carnivorous, but that level where it literally takes over an animal's neurological system is it's, it's, it's pretty incredible. unbelievable, isn't it? Isn't yeah. it though? And we've, I mean, we've just touched on the surface of the the wild and wacky world of of fungi and their their growth forms and their the systems that they employ to to survive. And this is one of them. I mean, yeah. the similar to the there's a very similar fungus that will do the same thing with caterpillars. Is once a caterpillar is infected, it will uh, essentially take over its motor system and direct it, likely using phototropism, um, which is the the preference to light. Hmm towards the top canopy of a tree, at what point it will basically lice the caterpillar and burst its insides. And as the goo, now laced with spores, trickles down the tree bark, more and more caterpillar are infected. <laughs> yeah. It's Which is really, it's brilliant. It is almost, it is. it's back to the emergent property thing yeah. we talk about because there is absolutely brilliance in that. That, that is it, so sinister and well, calculated. It's, well, it's what I find incredible about that is typically biological properties are the simplest mechanism, mm-hmm. right? And that doesn't sound like a simple mechanism to me for a very simple or what we perceive to be a very simple organism. That was like a fungi. highly complex niche market. Like, right. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. You know, and another interesting thing too is like bioluminescence within fungal species. Yeah. And do they not use the same compound that like fireflies do, luciferin? Um, that's a good question, Adam. I don't know for sure. I can I can guess that they do. Yeah, and that actually ties into the fact, and I think this is something that should be stated, is that, you know, mushrooms are closer to animals than they are to plant species. They are, and thus closer to us than we are to plants. Yeah, like significantly. I think it was like 1.5 billion years ago or something. They split off of animals and they still maintain a pretty consistent similarities with animals in the sense of like they, they inhale oxygen and exhale carbon dioxide, no? Mm-hmm. Yes, they do. And in terms of it's, it makes it a little bit tricky because if, if a human, um, if a fungal pathogen, if we're ever infected by a fungal pathogen, which for the most part we're not because we have one saving grace and it's our body temperature. It's Hmm. the fact that uh, alongside our immune system, but most fungi cannot proliferate and and live at our body temperature of 98.6. Our pH plays into that as well because we're 
So depending on the fungi, I mean, fungi definitely have preferred pHs. Yeah. But no, I think, I mean, if you close the door to a certain subset of fungi with the pH of, of blood, for example, you open it to another. Yeah, no, that's, that's actually pretty reasonable. Yeah. yeah. So, but the tricky thing is because we're more closely related to the fungi, a lot of the antifungals that we use, um, some of the more severe ones actually have really nasty side effects for us as well. They're super cytotoxic. Yeah. yeah. Now, would yeah. that be because they're just so chemically similar to us comparative to like other bacteria? I assume? It, it, yeah, it's because a lot of the effective um, pathways of control that these drugs need to take to inhibit fungal proliferation also segue into our cells. But, and I was going to say, it has to be something that we can consume and ingest that will actually make it into the bloodstream. But also, um, fungi, correct me if I'm wrong here, because again, not a smart guy, but they typically have cell walls, do they not? Fungi do have cell walls. Right. Yes. So now you have something that is essentially, has to be consumed by a mammal, be absorbed by a mammal, and then attack something that is essentially a plant, but not a plant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, you have to traverse that cell wall. So herein lies the challenge. And the other thing, too, is uh, typically uh, fungi will be affecting people in third world countries. I know not a great taxonomy and phylogeny to use for people, but um, there's not a lot of money in that, weirdly <laughs> enough. Yeah, you know, that's, that's, always a, that's always a factor. There's some significant socioeconomic issues that could be discussed on this point, but I think we'll save that for another time. But yeah, and arguably you could say the same thing about HIV initially. Well, and again, this is why we have these toxic chemicals, right? It's just yeah. there's not a lot of research into them, and, and it's pretty complex based and so on some of the things that we're talking about. It's better than nothing, so here you go. Yeah. And yeah, this is the status quo. With it's the no gin and tonic and quinine. No, unfortunately not. We're going to love the good old-fashioned malaria medication. Yeah, and isn't that wild? So much of modern medicine is synthesized from something that we've found naturally occur- occurring, in, be it in something that bacteria produce, in, in I mean, fungal production with penicillin or or elsewhere in plants uh we talked a little bit about how you know mushrooms can affect people in a psychedelic way are there other neurocognitive properties of mushrooms that are an avenue for exploration right now aside from the psychoactive components so yeah i'm glad i'm glad you brought that up jason because that i mean beyond the psychedelic um, components that we've been discussing, there are there are definitely health benefits, potential health benefits in humans um, being explored. And a couple of the species are, are really exciting. One that you've probably heard about before is lion's mane or hericium. Um, the actual lion's mane is hericium arenaceus, but there's a couple other species also. Why is it called lion's mane? It's called lion's mane because the way that it looks. So we've been talking about mushrooms this time. Um, and this thing could not look any more distinct from a mushroom. So when this this fruiting body grows, it presents itself as this white blob, a uh, cluster. <laughs> and from there, it grows hundreds of, of spine-like projections, always, always facing down towards the earth. And these, these spines that it grows give it the appearance of a lion's mane, I suppose, is where the name comes from. And that's where the active... Uh, spore release is coming from is on the surface of these spines and do those typically grow on the ground no they, you'll typically see them um generally between eye level and above in the canopy of trees they often come out of wounds um wounded um hardwood trees so then what's the advantage of growing in a downward direction to the ground for the spores 
You know, that's a great, great question, Jason. I don't know. I mean, it could be as simple as, as gravitropism. It could be a mild form of protection okay. using the rest of the globular fruiting body on top. Hmm. And I'm just going out on a limb here. I'm not sure. But the interesting thing about this mushroom is it contains a suite of compounds, um, a, a few of them actually. There's a few interesting ones that are, are notable for human intake in terms of potential health benefits. So the first one is it has um, beta-glucans, which have been shown in some studies to actually lower the rate of bad cholesterol, LDL, in the blood of humans. Um, and it also has a couple of different suites of compounds called hericinones and arinocenes. And I mean, if you remember, I called this hericium arinaceus. So sometimes my colleagues aren't the most creative with naming these compounds. <laughs> yeah. But uh, these guys, actually, both of them in vitro promote nerve growth factor, which does exactly what it sounds like it does in that it promotes the proliferation and maintenance and continuation of certain neuro cells in, in humans. And that one has just sort of been um, proven and quantified a little bit better. And it's it's kind of an exciting step, taking it out of the speculatory and more into the, legit, the legitimate. Yeah, because I remember a while back it was talking about lion's mane having neurogenitive properties, but it didn't it didn't seem to get much traction and it was sort of kind of like tossed aside. And now I, I was actually unaware that legitimate research was being done and that it was sort of being accepted by the scientific community that it actually has neurogenic properties. Yeah, it's been replicated pretty pretty strongly in a, in a few different publications now. So would that just be consumed orally? Like as a tincture, as, I don't know. So the it, common, I mean, the common method that you'll see these days are lion's mane capsules, which actually contain generally extracts, um, be it a water extract or an alcohol extract or a dual extract. Um, they basically just, you can fit more of the active of these compounds in a, in a capsule this way. And yeah, they're just consumed orally. My, and so, my personal favorite way to consume it, and this is a shout out because I'm trying to get Four Sigmatic on board as a sponsor, but uh, <laughs> they make mushroom coffee and mushroom oh, chocolate, yeah. oh, and yeah. uh, they base it out of Lion's Mane, and uh, they have another one that's a sh- Chaga. Chaga. Chaga, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Funny about Chaga. So interestingly enough, like I remember years ago, my uncle who, you know, I, I grew up up north in the bush basically, and my uncle still lives up there, and Chaga was coming huge down here, and it's... You know, it's anti, it's got like all these properties and vitamin B and it's supposed to be anti-cancer and all these different things. And it's sort of this parasite that grows in with trees, but it's a symbiotic parasite in the sense that it prevents other infections from occurring, but will eventually kill this tree. Mm-hmm. And so it grows in specifically in birches, yellow and white, depending on the, the temperate zone. And so I went up north and my uncle and I were on the bush, my wife's with us, and we're looking for chaga. And they come out as these big sort of black warts these fruiting bodies out of the side of these trees and it takes like 20 years for them to start producing them after the initial infection and so Steph and I were like okay we got to get these things and they're like 30 feet up in these trees so I like spurs and the belt and I'm climbing up and you want to leave about a third of it there so it can sort of reproduce itself and, and grow back out and we'd gotten a whole bunch of this stuff and dried it out and I actually ended up growing uh, chaga on an agar slide and then making an actual sort of a, a liquid culture with it. Okay. And then I kept the liquid culture alive and we went back up north and we were trying to sort of proliferate it within different trees. Yeah, re-inoculate it. Yeah, and so we were actually tagging a couple of trees around my uncle's camp 
and I'm sure someone's going to get really upset about this, but this was still in the same, you know, environment. I didn't go 7,000 kilometers somewhere else and do this. And we were drilling into like sapwood, hardwood and injecting this lipoculture into it and plugging some of them, mm-hmm. trying to mimic bear scratches and throwing them on there too. And my uncle was actually saying, this was probably seven years ago that it actually started to show signs of a chag infection. Ah. Which again, too, this, yes, it's parasitic and it's not, it will eventually kill the tree, but it's also allegedly protecting the tree from other more opportunistic infections. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, you know, like Chaga is really interesting too for a, a lot of the claims that they make on it. But again, you know, like lion's mane, until something has been clarified by science, it just remains relatively speculative. Yeah. And I mean, if you, if you were to go on to any search engine, Google and, and search all these up, and type in health effects of turkey tail or health effects mm. of reishi or any of these. Generally, towards the top of your search results, you're met with some sort of text that says, you know, these claims have not a been verified. Of yeah. Some kind. yeah, yeah. But yeah. lion's mane, however, has been verified and actually is shown to contain neurogenic properties. There is a pretty reasonable standard of of um, proof that I feel has been met with that one. Is it broad spectrum? I mean, neurological obviously, no one, no one signs off with a gold stamp. No, nobody wants to, and that's fine. But it, the fact that someone is even saying that this is reproducible mm-hmm. is, is a pretty impressive statement. And now you guys grow lion's mane, do you not, at Whitecrest? Yes, we do. Yeah, because I was there that one day, and you had uh, quite a few of them. Yeah. And that was that was fantastic. I still want to get some of those off you as well. Sure, so, no problem. And the other, the nice thing about lion's mane is actually, I mean, we talk about its neuro, um, its nutraceutical benefits, but it's a really great culinary mushroom also. See, and that's what you were saying. And I, I love eating mushrooms and I've gone out mushroom foraging with mycologists before. And I find, you know, a bunch of like fresh oysters and, and different types of mushrooms to be oh, absolutely delicious. Adam, I mean, I might get in shit for saying this, but oops, I don't. Yes. Um, yes the best swears are okay. It's okay. <laughs> yeah, it's, except for when handsome Jason swears, then everyone looks a little bit oh, negatively at him. I didn't even notice it. Just the first thing slipped out. But um, <laughs> it's all good. the mushrooms that wildly foraged mushrooms are fantastic and definitely my personal preference often there's some really fantastic ones out in the bush but But, again but like we said yes mileage varies because every mushroom is edible at least once yeah so please make sure you know what you're doing well and another (laughs) thing to say like there there are a lot of poisonous mushroom species in this area and with varying degrees of toxicity you know we have mushrooms here that will kill you in 48 hours and we have ones that'll just make your tummy upset no we do and everywhere in between yeah yeah and so it is why to say like every time i'm forging mushrooms i'm going with someone who knows significantly more than me because of that exact purpose absolutely there's a thousand ways to die i don't need to add another one to the list so i guess that kind of segues great into um idiots like myself who can't go forage for mushrooms we rely on people like tyler Mm -hmm. to produce things like lion's mane for us and you do that with white crest you said uh yes we do okay so talk to me a little bit more about your work there so um in terms of the nutraceutical aspects yeah we've begun cultivating lion's mane for use as both um, I mentioned the pill form with an extraction method and definitely for sale as fresh weight culinary mushroom. That's amazing. And so how, how do you cultivate these? So lion's mane is not dissimilar to um, psilocybin, although I guess it's distinct and I'm, I'm not to give away any trade secrets here, but basically it's, it's in a contained pouch that's, that's full of food. Um, often case hardwood sawdust um, combined with certain supplements and then you inoculate that either from an agar plate or a liquid culture and I say inoculate because up until this point once you get that food bag ready 
you have to hydrate it to the appropriate moisture level, and then you have to sterilize it. So the sterilizing is the tricky part, and that's really what keeps most people at home from growing fungi willy-nilly. Because if you don't sterilize it, a lot of other fungi um, are going to like to eat it also. So like pressure cooker kind of thing? Yes, yeah. So a pressure cooker, an autoclave. Uh, otherwise, you'll get a lot of molds, which are also fungi. Yeah. And unfortunately, for the case of what we're trying to cultivate, they're often faster to the food. Well, so, how long does it take from having a colonized or colonizing a bag of sterilized wood sawdust or whatever? Yeah, so I mean, talking on a ballpark, colonization from inoculation, depending on how you do it, if you take one small slice of agar and put it in versus if you take a whole liquid culture and put it in, yeah. It's going to colonize faster. But I mean, we can say anywhere from 10 to 20 days to colonize that bag. And then from there, you can you can fruit them, which basically opens them to the environment and allows them to produce fruiting bodies. Would that be high humidity, like similar to psilocybin cubensis, or would it... Yeah, lines. You're basically made. adding light and humidity yep. and air, so to speak. And, yep. and in most mushrooms, it's the fruiting bodies that we're looking to consume, correct? Yes. Now, let me think if there's... Any exceptions to those? Is truffle considered a fruiting body? No, it's it's a truffle is a fruiting body. Yeah, it, is? I okay. say it definitely is. Yeah. Huh. Um, They're tough. Uh, there's not many. There's there's a few. So there's a there's a Mexican corn delicacy called huitlacache, which is a type of um, corn smut. And that this, sounds so appetizing. It sounds, so it sounds like weird pornography. It sounds dirty. Corn schmutz. Like, yeah. I mean, it's, I'll yeah. watch that. No, but I've heard <laughs> of this, and it's quite delicious. Yes. Yeah. And, and it doesn't, Adam, it looks, unfortunately, pretty much like you are imagining. Um, but it's like a delicacy. It's a delicacy down there, and I wouldn't call that a, a fruiting body, per se. So is that basically just, I'm assuming it's corn infected with some kind of mycelium? That's so exactly. Just some, yeah, they literally scrape it off the cobs. Yeah, it's fungus corn. Yeah. That's, that's actually pretty it's, awesome. Yeah, yeah, it's like a white, cheesy... It looks very unappetizing, but it's apparently quite delicious. Yeah. Would that be considered fermentation? No, it's more the fungus has just parasitized the yeah. the the or, um, the kernels, I guess, hmm. and turned that into a spore dispersal vesicle. I'm disappointed that I'm the only person here who hasn't had this yet. I want to try this. Can you I can also, you manufacture some corn smut at Whitecrest for me? Is that something you know, that we can you, arrange? It's it might be possible to find here. I mean, I. It's it's definitely common in Mexico and probably mm. into South America, but in a in a special international food store, you might find some here. And you you typically don't find it here because it actually like decimates the corn. Like so, it's not you'd be introducing a highly all. aggressive parasitic yeah. oh, species into our corn yes, population. I'm not yeah. I'm not talking about you find some grown here. I'm talking about you find some yeah, canned. I and, meant and like some. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, but like I just pre-manufactured, like pasteurized, yeah. or some something that reduces. Yeah, I just meant to, like typically it's not grown here because we. Typically well, and I would imagine corn, not necessarily. I would imagine the climate zone here would probably prevent corn smut from <laughs> decimating corn. It needs homes. a hot, moist environment. It doesn't corn it? smut. Yeah. <laughs> 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 this conversation just got really sexy all of a sudden. Yeah. Um, uh, kind of flipping back though, you were talking about how sterilization is something that's really challenging for people trying to grow any sort of fungi at home. Yeah. Um, there's a subreddit that I've checked out on occasion, not for personal times, but it's called Uncle Ben's. And you were talking about a sack of okay. food. And I found it interesting that people are growing psilocybin cubensis using Uncle Ben's rice pouches. Is that something that like seems viable? Well, Jason, this is the first I've ever heard of this. Um, yeah, I don't know how they how they prepare and cook the Uncle Ben's rice packets. But right. well, I, what I can say is that, yeah, the rice inside for certain fungal species would be 
an excellent food source. Um, why is that? Because it's it's what they like to eat. It's a carbohydrates. Um, absolutely, yeah. it's a it's a food well, plant, plant yeah. product that they can digest and consume. Like to, psilocybin, to you ryeberries, millets, like all all sorts of yeah. Carbohydrates I love I love to grow spawn on rye, ryeberries. Yeah, they're my favorite. So you're saying if you want to grow good psilocybin, you do not do it like they did in Hannibal on. Bodies, is that correct? <laughs> did you I, did you watch that? Did you ever see that scene? No, I didn't. So th- this, I watched I, the first Silence of the Lambs, but I've never, I've never so, seen Hannibal. Yeah, well, so Hannibal was like sort of this takeoff series, and Mads Mikkelsen is that his name? Mads Mikkelsen? Yeah, I believe so. Yeah. He played Hannibal Lecter, and it was somehow more creepy than Anthony Hopkins. Wow, that's impressive. Oh which God, which is so a bold good. statement. No kidding. And so, yeah, as, as it progressed, basically. Hannibal Lecter, Mads Mikkelsen, he was taking diabetics, putting them into a diabetic coma where their sugars were extremely elevated and then growing fungus is on them in this, you know, hyperglycemic state mm. while they were kept in this coma. <laughs> and it was, and it was he, and he, he was, he was growing cubensis. That's what he, he growing was Yeah. Cubensis? Because the whole point is he was sitting in his chair and tripping on. Well, how did I miss that part body. of the episode? Wow. I mean, it was kind of like the whole thing. maybe i just watched that at a weird state of my life but so this is the first i'm hearing of this and i mean i don't want to burst any bubbles or on on hannibal but you've been doing this already and this is copyright infringement no on the producer's (laughs) end but intuitively in my head it's it's not gonna work you're not gonna you're not gonna grow psilocybe that way i I think they had some creative licenses that they were using on this but it's a a fantastic idea i I wasn't aware of psilocybin the reason i say that is because we spoke about fungi as decomposers but there's two primary decomposing pathways in the world, and only one of them is fungal. The other, of course, is bacterial. So to generalize, bacteria are quicker to the punch, and they get the richer foods first. Um, So things like polysaccharides, sugars, things that are readily available. The fungi have a much slower pathway, and they get the more recalcitrant materials, things like lignin and cellulose and hemicellulose, things that the bacteria don't have the uh, enzymatic activity to actually be able to degrade. And there's actually, there's a small section of fungi called the sugar-loving fungi because they decompose sugars according to a similar pathway to the sugars. Again, my, my colleagist is great at naming things. <laughs> <laughs> well, would that would that be fundamentally the yeast? Sugar know, the sugar-loving yeah, fungi. Yeah. yeah. Would, would that be yeast, though? Yeasts are, yeah, I mean, yeasts love a, yeah, they would definitely be one. Yeah, they would fall in that category. Mm-hmm. Now, how does other fungus produce alcohol as well as a byproduct other than yeast? Just yeast just seems to be extremely efficient at it and it's become sort of this entangled with humanity and our love of alcohol yeah, you know, Adam, we use we use the two different species of yeast, uh, and I can't think of any off the top of my head that that would have a, a similar effect mm. to that. So, going back to growing mushrooms on bodies, this the is, take home well, message is no, you can't grow psilocybin cubensis on someone who's fundamentally still alive. I I mean, I don't want to make that claim, but I'll make that claim. Yeah, no, you that's can. fair. You, you can straight it. up make that claim. It's yeah, fine. you can't yeah. do it. <laughs> No, man, that, that's, uh, that's awesome. And uh, yeah, do you want to talk about anything about Whitecrest? Like, you know, obviously you guys are, are growing lion's mane mushrooms, which is fantastic. And the fact that they have this degree of validity with their neurogenic properties and they're oddly enough for sale. What else are you guys doing? Like, you know, I, I've been to your 
your farm a couple times and you guys are doing all sorts of environmentally progressive things, carbon capture, you know, you guys are pretty awesome. We definitely have an, I mean, so we're an agaricus producer first and foremost, which is, which is the, um, the mushrooms that you'll see in the grocery store, anything Mm. from, from small, um, white button mushrooms all the way up to portobellos. Now we do, we do the brown mushrooms, but beyond that, we're also very focused on the innovation side of things. I mean, we have acres and acres of Arctic kiwi, which is a a type of kiwi that will actually grow and, and be able to survive the winter in Canada. We do extensive work with trying to reduce our outputs um, through reutilizing our spent substrates, through capturing our heat loss in our growth chambers and recycling that into the air coming in. We're, we're very mindful of the impact of, of mushroom production, and we, we try and um, control and mitigate ours as best possible. Well, don't you guys in your new greenhouses, you have a subsequent greenhouse right beside where you take actually the carbon dioxide that being exhaled, exhaled by the mushrooms and then pump it into the greenhouse to sort of... So feed all of your actual plants who utilize carbon? We do have a greenhouse on site, and that's currently got some awesome species in it, like like banana and passion fruit and citruses. Um, that carbon, the the transportation of the carbon dioxide and the heat from the grow rooms, is uh, that's a 2023 project. Mm, okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, can I just say this place sounds delicious? It's It's pretty incredible, Jason. We'll get you out there. Yeah, no, every time I go there, it's just the smell and everything. And like, there's, there's so much going on there. Like, it's a pretty impressive place. There's never a dull day. No, no, it doesn't seem like there is. And it's funny too. Like, you know, you go to the grocery store and much like everything, if it's fresh, it tastes better. But last time I was there, you gave me like a bushel. I don't know. I'm just random (laughs) amounts right now, but like a, a a significant amount of mushrooms. And I'm pretty sure I ate them all within like a day and a half. Fantastic. Yeah. It was absolutely incredible. Yeah. I'm glad to hear that. So question, Mm -hmm. would you be confident and taking, I don't know, two people like say me and handsome Jason out to forage for mushrooms sometimes. Absolutely, yeah, I would love to do that um, because I have confidence in my abilities and I can guide you guys. Well, and we can just give them to handsome Jason, yeah. and then and and Adam, I should you know. put out that yeah, no, we're not no anything because <laughs> what I should point out is there are certain um, fruiting bodies that I see out in the bush that even as, if I suspect they are potentially inedible, I will not touch. So basically, we we spoke a little bit about Amanita muscaria mm. and a couple of the other Amanitas. Anything within that genus that I see out in the bush, even though there are some species that are edible, I don't. It's I don't not touch. worth. The it's absolutely not worth the risk. Well, isn't the only way that you can truly identify a mushroom species is by like specific spore prints, and even that is uh... sometimes. However, Amanita has a very telling feature, which is just fantastic. It's very lucky. It does so. At the base of an Amanita mushroom, there's actually a large bulb. It's about a two-thirds of an egg-shaped cup that sits Mm. generally just below the soil line. So if you ever take a mushroom up and you're not sure about it, be sure to look for... Well, don't do it in the first place, but be sure to look (laughs) for that cup. And if it has that cup, don't even think about it. And so is there any edible species of Amanita that are pleasant to eat or they all cause some sort of gastric unpleasantness all the way up to complete hepatic and renal failure? No, I believe there are some that are um, edible and, and quite choice as a culinary. But I know, I know for it. myself it's absolutely not worth the risk. Actually, even the, the death cap has been described by people who have eaten it as quite pleasant tasting. <laughs> um, yeah, well, That's very misleading. Isn't it, though? Yeah, I know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's like, take this poison chocolate. <laughs> mm-hmm. So th- this is super funny. Um, they're actually... They're working on a treatment with um, psilocybin, 
which is actually an extract from the blessed milk thistle. So to counteract <laughs> the death cap, they use the blessed milk thistle. <laughs> the, this re- sounds like the, the religious pl- symbology. It sounds like a video game or something. I was going to say like a D&D camp. Yeah, yeah. right. Yeah. <laughs> the blessed milk thistle. I'm like, yeah, you must enough. combat the death so, cap. Okay, so I, I got milk thistle growing in my backyard. Mm-hmm. Is that a blessed milk thistle? Or Likely is, not. No, I can't not. say for sure, but I doubt it. So if I ever eat an animated mascara, then, you know, consuming milk thistle may or may not save me. That's a, well, you don't, I don't think you need to with mascara. You'd probably be okay. Just yeah. a little unpleasant. Yeah, fair enough. Again, based on how like adamant you are that you don't eat them, I wouldn't nope. even pretend to want to try them. Nope. And no. I've seen I've seen a couple of the really bad guys out in the wild. I've seen Floydes and, and Verosa. Well, you know, I was out mushroom picking with uh, this guy, I think in like near St. Mary's or something, and we went out there and he actually will check your bag, like yeah, a pillowcase of mushrooms, yeah. like multiple times. Because just because of how easy it is to mistake things. And yep. I think like the second time he was checking the bag, he's like, oh, oh no, this one's poisonous. And I'm like, what? And I had to dump out the entire bag. And I'm like, man, it's like five kilos of mushrooms, man. The whole bag just because of uh, one poison Well, mushroom? here's the thing. And we talked about this before too, is that it's not as if mushrooms are like topically poisonous. Yeah. Which like a they're, poison arrow frog or something like that. No, which they're not. They, yeah. they will, the contact with a poisonous mushroom will never yeah. hurt you. I think it's more of an abundance of caution. That you just throw it out in case there's something in there, and I'm, I'm sure it's just for his own. I suppose, yeah. If if one has snuck into there, then who's just, maybe there's another one dumped yeah. them all out, sort of thing. Yeah, which is probably reasonable. So, Tyler, I think we covered a lot of ground here today. Some really interesting conversations. Is there anything else you want to talk about, or any shout out you want to make? Like, you know, let's let's just now's, say once now's again, now's the time to plug your pluggables. To plug my pluggables, you know what? No, Adam. I mean, I want to thank you and Avail for having me here today. No, um, man, it was an absolute pleasure. Yeah, no kidding. I really enjoyed this discussion. We got into a lot of interesting <laughs> yeah, topics. Right. Yeah. yeah. And so, yeah, man, like I said, you know, check out uh, White Crest Mushrooms. You're putting them. Uh, they have an amazing facility. They're doing a lot of really good work for the environment and creating sort of these templates that can be reproduced, which I think is absolutely fantastic mm-hmm. with sustainable agricultural practices and so forth. And yeah, man, it was a pleasure conversating with you and we'll and, talk. And, and Tyler, just for my purposes, just before you get there, um, white crust mushrooms, can I find them in a grocery store near me or can I come to the farm to purchase mushrooms directly? You, you can do both, Jason. So we do have a, a farm front store and also um, a lot of our mushrooms get, we sell our mushrooms to Highline uh, Mushrooms, which is the, larger, the largest in Ontario and they package them as Highline. So if you buy a package of Highline mushrooms, they may very well be ours and the only way to know that's with the date code. All right, man. Yeah. Pleasure talking to you. And let's go, uh, let's go hang out. Okay. All right. I've, this has been a blast. Thank you guys. Awesome.